Life is very rarely linear or under control. It's often disappointing and frustrating and emotionally exhausting. And it's okay to take a break when life is chaotic. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where I talk with writers about writing and life. Sometimes it's memoir and sometimes it's an essay, but it is always true and always brave. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Right now, it is December of 2022, and so it is here, full on, the holiday season. Thanksgiving has always been my favorite holiday for a lot of reasons. First of all, the meal. I love, love, love the traditional Thanksgiving meal of turkey and cranberry jelly slurped out from a can and potatoes and homemade gravy. The gravy has to be homemade. Corn and carrots. Mm-mm-mm. But also the intention that it is eaten and infused with the idea of gratitude for the meal and everything else that we might be grateful for. Then, of course, there's football and a nap and the best part of it all, homemade pie. My absolute favorite, which reminds me of apple pie that I would always make with my Nana, placing each apple slice one at a time. No ice cream for me, sometimes with a slice of cheese on top. That's what she would do. Mm -mm -mm, I love it. However... Before you can ever even just slap together your first leftover turkey sandwich, Christmas rears its giant Santa-capped head. Ho, ho, ho. With the pressure to buy gifts and be happy and make scats and scats of preparations for parties and decorations and wrapping and joy. Ugh. Nothing is more of a joy killer for me than building an entire season around forcing it upon everyone. I know a lot of people enjoy it, and so I apologize if you are one of them, but left to my own inclinations, I enjoy brightly colored lights when daylight wanes. I do enjoy some Christmas music. I will never miss the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I also love it when I spot something that I think would be an ideal gift that will delight someone I love. I just don't want to be forced into it. The minute I feel an external pressure to conform to something, it makes me want to run in the opposite direction. And I figure maybe, just maybe, I'm not the only one. When last I left you, I was exploring caterpillars and butterflies and milkweed. But since then, my sphere of exploration has started to include another major transformation, death. Because it's one of the hardest things to deal with, especially for anyone dealing with life-challenging situations at this time of year. When the disconnect between losing a loved one 
or caring for someone can be all the more challenging when it seems that every commercial and email and grocery store aisle is screaming at you, be happy, be joyful. So I thought it would be a meaningful time to bring back my writer friend, Rachel Lee. What her essay, I think, is about is trying to be in line with our own values when it comes to the aspect of life that we usually avoid, like the plague, if you will pardon the cliche, and that is death. So I hope you will give it a listen. You might just end up laughing along with us. Rachel is a real straight shooter, while I, on the other hand, still hear myself being avoidant of saying words like death, choosing it instead, as you will hear. She has taken up the moniker of irreverent for her approach to discussing and handling the end-of-life stuff, so she just kind of rolls with me on all of it. The other thing we talk about is a death doula, as if it is as common as a plumber or an accountant. But in case you haven't heard of one, instead of doing what a standard doula does, which is someone who's employed to provide physical, emotional, and informational guidance to support a woman through labor, a death doula is not a healthcare professional, but someone who provides the emotional, physical, and spiritual support for the end of life. All right, time to take a little breather from making those lists and checking them twice for just about the next half hour or so as I welcome back Rachel Lee. I'm really excited to be talking with you again. Rachel and I talked when I was at mm-hmm. the very beginning of putting out Daring to Tell, and you had an essay that was so good as I have been uh, sort of going into uh, a little, uh, what do you call it? A flight pattern, circling pattern over the <laughs> runway. I'm like, what getting will ready for next landing yeah. takeoff. I'm not sure which is the exactly. Analogy, right? I know. Am I taking off landing? I don't even know. But um, we had such a great conversation, and I think it is so relevant. So I wanted to bring you back. So how are you? How how's the past year and a half been, Rachel? <laughs> I am great. I am glad to be back. I apologize for any doggy noises you might hear behind me. But when I reminded myself what has happened since last we talked, there was a lot of elder care stuff. So yeah, so I, I'm right there with you in terms of uh, it, it is the, the one constant in this ever unpredictable life is, is aging and dying. Exactly. I know. And, and that was one thing that kind of was stuck out to me after our conversation. It's like, okay, the only constant is death. <gasps> sadly you know um yeah really um and then we I don't know like we laugh about it but the thing is the truth is when any one of us is going through it in in many different capacities as a caregiver as a spouse sibling partner to a caregiver as you know a friend supporting someone who is doing something any of these things when it hits us it's just that's the moment where you go okay i'm going into survival mode and so it's so true yeah so i wanted to like just sort of establish what you have done in the past year and a half, Rachel has 
a podcast that is also in its own uh, circling flight pattern. <laughs> it's in a in a hiatus. Um, but you have so many good interviews and good stories there about elder caregiving, parental caregiving, end of life care, end of life considerations done in a very cheeky and irreverent way, <laughs> I think, in order to sort of counterbalance that heaviness that comes with everything that goes with with those challenges. Mm -hmm. So that is out there and your website is out there. And maybe you want to just talk a little bit about what what those are. Absolutely. So I basically have been creating this content live, right, in my real life with the elder care things I have been managing in parallel to raising my now 12-year-old. And mm -hmm. so about four years ago, I actually did a talk on it and that launched my thinking on what can I do with this? I was constantly finding myself either offering this wisdom or being solicited and so I went sort of into a curating mode, if you will, because if you start to pay attention, and unfortunately, because of COVID, Michelle, there is a lot more attention actually mm -hmm. to this topic now for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. But let me make the point this way. I had my eye on an end of life care program, a death doula program at UVM about that time. And it took me a while to find the time to do it and sign up for it. And when I went to sign up for it, it was waitlisted by six months because everybody, right, yeah, is oriented yeah. to this work, the need for it, why it's important. Mm -hmm. So I've had a little arc in my focus and transition, actually. So whereas I started with a mission that was very much both curation and creation. I'm a creative first and foremost, but I just found all this information out in the world and I really, really wanted to share it. So my website has a ton of resources, and I was making a point of trying to push them out there on a regular cadence to educate people. But really quickly, two things happened. A, my creative piece was getting squeezed a little bit, which mm -hmm. is really what I is the most unique thing I have to offer that anybody has to offer, mm -hmm. right? There are right. actually a lot of people like Cake and Conversation Project and uh, Departing Dearly, I just discovered, a friend helped me discover, amazing, amazing, wide, deep, broad resources, people who have gone through things like this themselves and mm -hmm. are now offering it up like I am. Mm -hmm. But the part that's unique to me is sort of what I've personally gone through and the irreverent twist, if you will. So that's what I've found that Michelle, I tease about it, but when you've gone through something like this, you say, oh, I know exactly what you need. I'm going to lead this horse to water. I'm going to help you be proactive. I'm going to give you a checklist. You're going to fill out all these forms. You're going to talk to your elders. You're going to get ahead of it. And it's going to be perfect. Well, it turns out that never, <laughs> ever, <laughs> ever, 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 no. ever happens. Right. And even when I have Rarely, shall we say, I guess, right? I'm going to go close to saying mm, never. Yeah. Because, not never, not never, but right. rarely yeah, ever. Rarely, because rarely. Because yeah. even in the instances where I myself or other people I know thought they did everything right that was when I had a five-year lawsuit <laughs> so mm, so it's wow. just it's basically as unpredictable let's put it this way birth and death are equally unpredictable right, I remember right. when I was pregnant everybody said good luck with you thinking you're going to have some birth plan that's going to work out spectacularly and sure enough even if it goes quote well it's always different than what you quote planned for. Right, right. So at the end of the day, when I was close to people going through something, even when they asked for help, and actually I'm going to say it differently, they didn't ask for help in the moments. Mm, in the moments right. when you think, oh, that's when you need my resources, or that's when that article that you read that I told you about, or this specific thing on the site, that's going to come in handy. 
nobody has the bandwidth for that. Right. You know, I'm quoting right. you back to you, Michelle, but when we were talking about this, it's I was like, what's the analogy? And you're like, it's being thrown overboard <laughs> and you yeah. just are doggy paddling trying to keep your nose above water and that's it. So even though I felt fair, like not, not super productive this year, but like I was putting stuff out there, when I look back in retrospect, I really only pushed a little bit of everything. And part of that was because my elder care stuff went on pause more than it has in the last 11 years. I got, quote unquote, the chance to take these two death doula courses mm -hmm. and to immerse myself in just sort of, you know, a reminder of it's less about pushing those resources out in the universe and more about sort of refreshing myself, reminding myself what what I've been through, what I have to offer, how I can put it out into the world. And then the serendipity of having you want to sort of reboot our conversation just brings it all together because I am about to put myself back out there with more of the irreverence and less of the resources, if you will. Yeah. Uh, well, I love that. And I especially loved that the timing seemed right on your part, too, because that's meaningful to me. We can only know what we know when we know it. Mm -hmm. And we can't know what the next thing is going to be. And, and I think that the observational stuff can only happen or can be given the opportunity to come out more when we do have that chance to step back, take a breather, say, exactly. what the hell just happened to me? What, what have I just been <laughs> exactly. through? I mean, you learned mm -hmm. trial by fire about caregiving and death in rapid succession over mm -hmm. the course of at least five years, as we'll hear in the essay that I'm mm -hmm. going to bring back that you had written and read. The other thing about this is that I feel strongly and that is emerged in my podcast is I have kept doing this over time. I think both of us learned, okay, I think our paces need to slow down. <laughs> so we only exactly. do what we can do. The great thing about podcasts is once you put it out there, there it is. And it's there a resource it that continues to grow as people can find ways to discover it. So me getting to my point is that the only thing we have to share, I believe, is our unique perspective. And I think That's that exactly that right. genuine desire to give and share all the knowledge, information, resources that you acquired in that vast amount of time mm -hmm. was something that you felt like this thing bursting inside of you. Exactly. The part that you've gotten out there is there as a resource for mm -hmm. irreverent elder care insights. And in the podcast episodes that exist, then we go, all right, but what what am I doing again? And sometimes <laughs> there's that, that. We have to just re- Recalibrate. Yeah, recalibrate. Take a turn for what it is. The other thing I was thinking about what we have to offer being our unique story is the other direction that um, Daring to Tell took from after episode two was actually about the writing. And in mm. that episode, we didn't really discuss writing all that much. And mm. writing seems to be an important part of your story that you're coming back to that you had kind of pushed to the back burner for a while when you started all the 
other yeah. empire it, building, as I call it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to say that because I think the day I was born, I was a writer. When I get out of bed, I'm a writer. When I go to bed, I'm a writer. But to your point, like in terms of my identity and what, what drives me as a creative, but to your point, the empire took over, right? And then I needed to maintain the resources and I need to read the books to tell the people about them and then do a podcast. And I won't say that it got away from me, but it there was so much opportunity. And so I think of all of us who who knew each other through these workshops, I had an easier time than most, to your point about, I, I only allowed myself to do a podcast starting once a month. I had easier time than most to be like, I can't do more than this because I have a full-time job and a full-time family and a full-time this and a full-time that, and, and people were still dying around me. So to your point, I don't even know if folks will visibly see me writing more, but I'm absolutely going back to the writing construct, to my end game being about the writing. And I find the oral, A-U-R-A-L part, very much related. I, I am also have always been a storyteller. My college friends tease like, oh my God, did you hear the Rachel version of that story? Because in it, I usually say, and then I breathed in, and then I breathed out. I leave no detail unsaid, <laughs> which you know, Michelle, from the email I sent you <laughs> in the prep for this conversation. I think we're similar in many ways that way. It's like, <laughs> I, I can't leave any can't detail leave of this. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So back into your point, which is that when I revisited, what did I do last? They are actually things I'm very proud of in terms of storytelling with my elder care consultant buddy Howard this time last year and also providing some hot tips around elder care and then talking to a death doula who actually took the same, a practicing death doula. I'm yet to be, to be a practicing death doula. I'm an academic death doula. But she took the same program and I talked to her in March. So if people were only to go back to those last ones I did plus a conversation with my mom, which is really what it's all about, right? You get to see sort of what my end game is and my through line is. But at the end of the day, what this decade of all of these issues has taught me is life is very rarely linear or under control. It's often disappointing and frustrating and emotionally exhausting. And it's okay to take a break when life is chaotic. Yes. So yes. for me, the chaos has been about when I look back in it, Michelle, the uncle that I reference at the end of my essay has since died. Another uncle has died. My mother herself almost died. So it was just a chance to sort of step back to your point and get some perspective so I could bring my personal unique stories back to the table. And I think one of the parts that is the most endearing and the most Rachel, maybe I should say, <laughs> of all of the offerings are those brilliant cartoons that you do. They <laughs> are you. so funny. They are so good. And so anyone can see that 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 is one thing I cannot offer listeners <laughs> on a podcast. It's an entirely different medium. So if you're curious about those, I will put a link to it in the show notes for this. So you're, you're inciting me to get a couple fresh ones up, Michelle, because <laughs> gra grandma's on fire as you know. Oh, God. <laughs> Okay, we're going to talk about that more. But with that, now we're going to hear Rachel's essay, Illicit Nourishment. Five years ago, when I was 42, I got a call from a nursing home manager in New York State who reported that my father was smoking cigarettes in his room with his younger brother. Your father, I was informed, will be forced to leave if the infractions continue. As family representative, I had to field these calls and manage their consequences. That meant my full-time job and my own family life were disrupted while I picked up the pieces again. I was furious. 
After decades of role reversal moments like this one, I was increasingly used to and increasingly intolerant of dad's narcissistic self-imposed drama. The fact that he might get himself evicted from his nursing home was just a repeat of when I had to evict him from his own home. I had taken over the mortgage on my parents' decaying ranch to wipe their credit card and used car loan debts, impressively modest given dad's midlife unemployability and mom's meager piano teaching income. My parents had no assets, no investments, no retirement funds, no pensions, no savings, and only poverty-level Social Security checks. And my husband and I already had the equivalent of two mortgages, one for our Boston condo and the other for our toddler's monthly preschool payment, no significant savings, and only the questionable security, as dad's experiences taught me, of two full-time jobs. During this period, for lack of his own job to dress for and depart to, Dad would sit in the large leather recliner that fit his big and tall frame and read books, listen to classical music, nurse his anger and depression, and nourish himself by chain-smoking bargain cartons of cigarettes and sucking down liters of gin bought on sale. When his body began deteriorating, along with his emotional and psychological states, I had to find an affordable support solution for him and permanent relief for my mother. I sent her to my sister in Virginia for a break, and I called the only two people I thought could tolerate my father while I solved for his daily needs from a distance. His younger brother and sister did not disappoint, arriving from Michigan immediately and willing to stay at the house indefinitely. But indefinitely turned out to be a few days. They took away his smokes, his lighter, his booze, and his portable urinal, insisting on reversing years of degenerative behavior in one week. They demoralized dad. He swore at his sister. She slapped him. In a validation of how much dad's immediate family had suffered and how conditional sibling relationships can be, my aunt called to lambase me and my mother for putting up with his shit and then abandoned her big brother alone at home. When I made dad move to an apartment where there were Medicaid-funded aides on site and a daycare for elders down the street, which is a poor man's assisted living, I was glad to give him a clean slate in a freshly painted one bedroom with newly installed carpets. But when I returned one month later with my toddler and husband, dad had already converted the oasis into a toxic reflection of his own misery. The whole place was soaked in secondhand smoke. He'd been driving a scooter to the nearest convenience and liquor stores to spend his meager discretionary money on cigarettes and gin. The irony was not lost on me that the organic strawberries I was so fastidious about feeding my son for his own nourishment created the first stain on the new carpets when the oppressive air from dad's preferred sustenance made his grandson vomit. It was the elder care program that evicted dad into his last stop at the nursing home for proving incapable that is, unwilling, to follow their protocols. Just before that, they promised him a swift and gentle demise from kidney failure, but his sturdy German genes kept him alive for four more months. His genes didn't prevent him from declining, though, so after the move to the nursing home, the meat and potatoes man was mandated pureed food to keep him from choking to death. And since alcohol was not allowed at the facility, that meant in his joyless, sinless, and bed-bound 80-year-old existence, Cigarettes, if he could get them and if he could get outside, were dad's only remaining emotional, spiritual, and physiological comfort. He had no livelihood, no church and daily bread, no gin on the rocks to take the edge off. I was furious when I got that call from the nursing home, 
but upon reflection, I realized there was no better way for my father to usher in what was close to being the end of his life, reconciled with a beloved brother, accepted as he was, and not alone. These days, my memory has softened that moment into a touching denouement, a conciliatory cigarette offered by a sibling who spontaneously drove 600 miles to apologize and say goodbye. The adrenaline rush of illicit nourishment and boys being bad, a calming meditative yoga inhale, a nicotine-infused release, better than any fresh air or risk-free pureed food, easing dad toward death, toward relief, toward peace, with camaraderie, humor, and forgiveness. That is such a timeless piece of writing. As you said that you are doing more writing and, and I know that you sort of, you hedged that a little bit by saying, well, you know, it's, people won't see that actively. And that is the one, well, that is one of the many things about writing Mm. that I find, um, I don't know, a little frustrating and it's an invisible Mm -hmm. creative endeavor because I I, dare I say that I (laughs) I feel like a writer what can Mm -hmm. I point to it's out there that I've written um Mm -hmm. not too much but I am amassing words behind the scenes so (laughs) if that is what makes one a writer (laughs) I like to say I'm a writer I aspire to get more out there. Um, So yes, uh, to that end, I know that you are a writer at heart. And I think it's great that we come back to the thing that sometimes you go, well, I was trying all these other things. But when we come back to something, sometimes we know, oh, you know, you're coming back to your heart somehow or coming back to your you and and your one of your innate gifts, I will say, because you have many. You're Aww. a great communicator and you have so much um, genuine generosity for wanting to share it. And so I'm glad Thank that you. you're doing some writing, however and whenever that ends up coming out. <laughs> no one can ever promise because God forbid we actually state and those I- things. Exactly. You know, it's so nerve wracking because you put it out there and you don't do it. And people are like, I I mean, the specter of I always thought you were going to do A, B and C over my life has been super annoying. But let me offer us all this. I was listening to NPR, I'm an NPR junkie yesterday, and I heard Craig Robinson on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And you all know him from The Office or Hot Tub Time Machine. And my favorite part about it was they went off on this little tangent of apparently his mom was a music teacher in schools and he himself taught like K through eight. And at the end of the conversation, when Peter Sagal said, you know, you've been on TV, you're in movies, you're doing this, you're in a band. If you could be doing anything you want to do, what would it be? He's like, oh, man, I would just be in the basement in a dark room playing the piano all the time. Mm. And I deeply appreciate and I, I love Peter Sagal was like, oh, yeah, because, you know, it's so tough being an actor. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it probably is. And there's yeah. nothing I offer all of us. Like, I'm not one of those people who's like, well, if you write, you're a writer. But gosh darn it, if you, like Craig Robinson, get into that flow state and completely morph into this creature who gets an adrenaline rush by doing the work or can't not do it unless you, it's like being a runner, right? You, you get to call yourself a runner if you have to run every day to make yourself feel good, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the shame of it is I think, you know, we end up, all of us, not just the culture, but we want something to show for it, to your point. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it, the invisible part of it, how you can't share it. You'd have to walk around with pages or a laptop, right? 
versus mm-hmm. somebody else can hang their art on a wall or play their instrument for others to see. <laughs> Michelle's walking around with her laptop right now. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I very much appreciate that that point of view. So to follow up on a couple of little tidbits you dropped in the earlier part of our conversation, tell me about the death doula school. I am very mm. curious to hear what that's been like. And I I will also preface that by saying I decided yesterday to pick up a book that has been on my shelf for probably years that I felt like I had to get it when it came out. And I have been too afraid mm-hmm. to open it. And Uh-oh. it's no I know it's one you've read. When Breath Becomes Air. <gasps> Such a beautiful book. I, Such a beautiful yeah. book. I just was, honestly, I, I was scared to read mm. it um, because it's like, I, I don't know, as someone who also loves memoir, mm-hmm. I was thinking about why I put off opening it for so long. And I think that it's because I would know that he died. I mean, mm. with every other memoir, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say every other memoir, but most memoirs, yeah. we read, I read it, and I go, and that person lived to tell about it. Well, this <laughs> guy didn't. I mean, yeah. and it's astounding. And so, and I only mention that for people who are familiar with that book. If you haven't, maybe mm-hmm. you're not ready to pick it up. I don't blame you. Then don't do it until you're ready. Yeah. But what I am loving about it right now, and I'm probably about halfway through, was what you pointed out, the academic versus the active. And so you have been through the class, but you haven't obviously been a death doula in practice yet. But that, okay, that's my big diversion to say, tell me more about it. Oh, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing that I always have to remind myself and why I can so easily go to the irreverent is that unlike Kalanithi, this all of the people in my life that I'm talking about or goofing about or doing cartoons on, they lived good long lives. Maybe not good, maybe some tough, but long lives. And it's a very, very different experience to deeply immerse yourself so that a tool go on to thinking about how it could be a better experience, right? How, what is our death culture? How do you embrace it? How do you not treat it as tragic? That's a wholly different experience than what that book is about, right? Mm. That is a very, very, very young, very talented person who was taken from the planet way too soon. Right. And I recently read another memoir, sadly I'm forgetting the example, the same same type of thing, a, a woman writing her own story as she's dying. And so I I, I want to name Michelle that it makes total sense to me that you'd have a hard time opening the cover of a book like that, right? Versus, you know, me for the death doula work, again, I want to be careful. The woman that I spoke to, Caroline in March, was very good about me naming that death is not just for the old, right? And Mm. she's got an enormous social justice lens, if you will, and her Mm -hmm. perspective on really naming that she had worked with children, naming that this is something that comes for all of us and not often in a good moment, right? But for me, because the applied use of it, I expect would be with the elder population or with you know, elder uh, pets, if you will. Mm -hmm. It was just in this incredible chance to reinforce a, not just my interest and passion for it, but my hard-earned wisdom, if you will. So even though 
the death stuff, the active death stuff in my life is has quieted down, right? I am still in the sandwich generation, right? So mm-hmm. there was no good time to choose to take those courses. My work is constantly crazy up and down. There's 24-7 soccer games for my son. You know, I realize in retrospect that this year was even more intense because all of a sudden COVID is over, quote unquote, and we're all traveling and seeing friends and, and that's things that we hadn't done for a while. Mm-hmm. We were in a cocoon. So the chance to immerse myself with this amazing cohort of people for, uh, you know, a number of weeks and months, depending on the program, was a total gift. Mm -hmm. And and then above and beyond it, it just provided amazing resources. So a couple of things that I would say, and again, folks could listen to my conversation with Carolyn in March. I think a lot of people, not unlike when I got my counseling degree, a lot of people are are running out and saying, oof, the world needs this. I want to do it. I'm going to hang out a shingle. And it's, A, it's not, um, what's the word for not managed or not uh, legislated or- you Yeah, know, like uh, licensed or something. Exactly. That's, right. that's what I was looking for. And so Carolyn's point was, we finally got into a place where hospitals will have birth doulas, right? And won't right. it be amazing? I won't say- if, but when, that we can also recognize the need to have somebody at the table that is helping usher people out on the other side. So I really do think it's a movement. I guess I would just name, nobody should go running off to take these courses and expect they're going to hang on a shingle and make a living. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. But I would love for people to know for their own deaths or their own elders, meaning one that you can be planful for, or even if you can't, right, that this is an option and that there's many, 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 even in the time since I became interested in the course a couple of years ago, there's, I would probably thousands of people getting trained in this way and working to practice in this way because mm-hmm. of COVID. Right. Um, so yeah, it was an amazing experience. Well, I tend to want to look at the the silver lining of things and it's not, I think it's to me hopeful that more people have an interest in it because mm. I feel like that's the opening for the chance for more either conversations or willingness to Mm -hmm. engage in this stuff ahead of time. And again, to your earlier point, I think I'm not sure it makes anybody ever ready for it. Mm -hmm. It when, um, when it comes knocking to us and it's never at a time that's, you know, planned or expected and certainly not convenient. So yeah, I don't know. I'm all. I, I'm always about like try and be prepared for. But who I think knows what you know. You you really hit the nail on the head because truly that's what happened. And I'm not meaning to be preachy at at all here. This is just factual. We never saw death before. It was anesthetized. It was behind closed doors. It is still a business, but that's starting to change. When there are bodies lined up in New York City and <laughs> in trucks, right? Death death is very visible. And so yeah. that was one of the main reasons things started right. to change. The conversation yeah. has started to change with environmentalism. There's a lot of conversations yes. around green funerals, right? right. And burials. Right. Right. And I, I laugh about it. I do have an only child, and so I can say this with deep authority, what most people don't get to do when you have an only child is practice what you learn, your hard-earned mm-hmm. wisdom. You get you only do it once, and then you're like, oh, if I had another one, I would have known. Right. For me, I've gotten to do it about a dozen times, and right. that's really- In terms of the death side of things. The death, sorry. Right, the death not- <laughs> Exactly. So yeah. The point being that I, I don't think quite as many people orient to, like I do, like, let's go deep and broad and, and share and application. Right. 
intuition, but that's really right. what it is, is I've basically honed this exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And, and years. not, it, not willingly necessarily either. <laughs> Usually, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is guaranteed, but I don't think anyone's like, can't wait to get better at this. You know, <laughs> we all run in the other direction, rightfully it's so. It's, it's um, yeah. And, you know, my, my, my temperament is my temperament and my, my practice is my practice. And both those things lend itself to me being very relaxed and having this being normative because, uh, you know, you hear people struggling against death, right? Not being willing to embrace it. And my mother sees so many specialists right now. I can say also with deep authority that these people, as Atul Gawande said, are just having such a hard time with adult children and or their elders coming in and saying, you need to fight death for me. I don't want it. Keep this from happening. I go the other way. Literally, we walk in and the first thing I say is quality life to my mother and I means less appointments. We're coming here too often. We don't want to catch COVID this way. To the last one, they all laugh with me. They thank me. They literally say Mm. we wish more people were like this. They watch me have open conversations with my mother about Mm -hmm. where we draw the line in every single appointment. And the very good news is now instead of going to specialists every other week, we go once every six months for each of the success specialists, all herologists. (laughs) Yes, I know. even my mother was so unhappy in this last couple of years when she just happened to have these issues back to back because she's old, you know, you can't even say she's dying of cancer or she's dying of endocrine issues or she's dying of pulmonary issues. No, no, she's just old. (laughs) So, you know, that's what happens. And so I think that the, again, the follow-up for, for people who may be familiar with your podcast, that the whole theme that goes through all of the different conversations is your mom, which has kind of been the, the through the fuel line. for yeah the through line thank you that's what i'm trying to exactly. think of thank god she's lived this long otherwise yeah. i would have nothing to talk about <laughs> it's not she's been around long enough that even every six months is still yeah it's a little touch and go happening yeah no yeah. but that's and and that's great so yeah i think my favorite current example we've got two things hanging out there right now it used to be like ah maybe she'll make it to the holidays maybe she'll make it to her birthday now we're, we're refurbishing her Steinway Grand, which if anybody has seen the cartoon about that, she used to be very affronted oh, right. because I would complain that it reeks of secondhand smoke, all of the soft bits. And my mother said, we did not smoke near the piano. And by that, she means that my father and I did not chain smoke for decades, three feet away from the piano. But yeah, so that's It was happening. six so- feet away or something. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm nope. being... No, literally, true statement. So within uh, within the next three months, if grandma lives, she will see that come home all, all fresh and clean. Uh, but wow. my, my, yeah, that's a big excitement for the family. That's and awesome. then my other hilarious favorite anecdote of recent days was there was a young gentleman in the ICU when my mother completely randomly had a leaky heart sent her into the hospital for a number of days. And over 48 hours, they called me multiple times and said, this is it. This is it. You have to make a decision. This is it. Which way do you want to go? Do this, do that. And so I stood in this ICU with my mother strapped down with a trach in her throat and Mm. this guy with fire engine red hair came in. And so I I just remember that because everybody was masked. Right. So I wouldn't otherwise necessarily recognize him. And didn't he just walk into the heart doctor the other day as, as the one who's tracking her since then? And I said, hey, how are you? And he looked at me in surprise. 
And I said, remember this two years ago, or I guess, I, I maybe it was even just last year since we talked, Michelle. Last year, my mother was in the ICU and you were there and she almost died. And he had this look of complete shock on his face from Michelle. And I said wow. in front of my mother, oh, you're surprised because grandma wasn't supposed to survive that, was she? And he's like, nope. <laughs> wow. So yeah, she's doing, she's doing fine. Everyone lives their own story, don't they? Hers is a pretty good one, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. I'm so glad we had this chance to chat again, and people should keep their eye on the pause going on. <laughs> I don't pause. know if you can keep your the eye pregnant on the pause. pause. Yeah, yes. really. <laughs> exactly. Keep your eye on the writing or the pause. <laughs> well, truly, Michelle, I really, really appreciate you helping me reboot, and I'm glad to Woo-hoo. have. Uh, Met you, my fellow writer, all those years ago. I know. Here, look at us. Still doing our thing. Old hat. Friends two and a half hours away from each other and still have never met. Person, <laughs> that's okay. That's pretty we much We will. I know world. we will at some point. Someday. Yes. Exactly. Someday soon. All right. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs>